it was so good to um, it's, it's so good to be home with you, uh, back home from from a little getaway. Uh, but I will be honest, I am very thankful um, for a chance to just get away once a year um, with the family and just just kind of hover on our little square footage of the beach and, and get completely sunburned and fried and, and all those good things. It's just it's just good. It's good to get away, and, and you know, as every year passes, it's just a fleeting moment. I feel the fleetingness of moments, and know that those moments pass a little more. And it's just a little sweeter every year. So it's 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 good to be back, um, but it was good to get away. And and so from sun up to sundown, when we go away, me and Julie Beth, quite literally, just sit and talk about nothingness, absolute nothingness, silliness. From sunup to sundown. And the whole week really is an exercise just in nothingness when we get away. Um, I, I mean, seriously, think about what happens at the beach. You know, a few hundred, if not thousand people just kind of hover together, <laughs> grab some tents, um, point them in the exact same direction. You know, slather their bodies with all kind of chemicals and and stuff, and just kind of sit there and eat Doritos and, and little Debbies, and you know, and everybody's cool with it. Like any other time, if you were like, "Hey, let's all get together, put some chemicals on our body, sit up under a tent, point it the same direction, and just talk about nothing all day long," everybody, you, everybody, be like, "Well, that's that's nothing. I mean, that, I mean I'm not going to do that. That's that's ludicrous." Especially when you go, "Oh yeah, and by the way, we're going to take off the majority of our clothes." During that time, yeah, you know I mean, like everybody would be like, "No, <laughs> that sounds like something that probably happened in Genesis that y'all said was a bad thing, right?" No, but, I mean, it's just kind of what happens, and, it, and so you just kind of get away. But the cool thing is, maybe in those moments, maybe, maybe, if not, but one thing, maybe just one thing is a little bit right about that. In the fact that we just have a chance to pause and refocus. Just kind of think about simplicity. Get away from the rat race. Get away from the running of the week. Get away from the, oh, i got to keep up with this person or keep up with that or keep up with the bank account or keep up with you. Just, just, for, just for one minute, maybe we get it right. We just kind of pause and, and just think, what, what really does matter? This week kind of hit one of those moments. As we were there. You know, if we, if we boil down all of life, biblically, it's not really as complicated as we make it. Like, we cluster up life so much, don't we? We make it so complicated. And it's not. Biblically, if we boil it down, what is mankind's purpose? The catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's it. And that it's biblical and it's right. It's Colossians 3.17. It's 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's Romans 12.1 and 2. It's, it's all the things. It's, if you boil down life, our purpose is just to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And anything else we tack onto that, man, we make it a mess really quick and really fast if we're not careful. And so if you boil down what is the chief end of family, then it's just to do the same together. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever as a family. So the purpose of family is not to make a name for itself. The purpose of family is not to pile up as much money as you can. 
The purpose of family is not to get your name in lights or everybody to like you or to whatever the thing is. That's none of those things are the purpose. And listen, I'm not in I'm not saying that having money or those things are inherently evil. That's not that's not my point. I'm just saying we sometimes we'll mess it up if we cluster it up. And this week I sat down up under my umbrella and just kind of looked at everybody as they were sitting there. Paint a picture for you real fast. In front of me is my dad and my father-in-law. My dad's in his chair. The sand is washed in. It's all sitting cockeyed and crooked. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there behind them, and, and they're just they're having conversations. And, and I just sat and I thought about how both of those two men in different ways have pointed me to Christ. And they don't even know it. I thought about things that my dad has did. I've thought about the fact that my father-in-law has not murdered me yet. <laughs> that in and of itself pointed me to Christ. And I just kind of sat and thought about things that they've done throughout the years when I ran his boat slap into a pier and broke the trolling motor off. I mean, all the things. I, I just sat and I thought, these men, they don't even know it and they've shaped me. They didn't even mean to. Well, hopefully my dad meant to. <laughs> and I just thought about that. I looked over to the left. Over to the left is my Mom, and I'll cry if I start thinking about all the ways that she has pointed me to Christ. And, um, and, and looked at my mother-in-law, and one of the most merciful and gracious people. Hey, God, y'all heard, she, you know, again, the boys walk into a room, and she's sitting in there, and, and they, they walk in, and they're like, hey, we killed ten people. And my mother-in-law is like, it's oatmeal cake. It's fine. You didn't mean to murder them. Like she's just so gracious and, and just thinking about it. And then I looked over here to Julie Beth and she was hanging out with Katie and they're having a conversation and looking at them and how they've pointed me to Christ in different ways. Julie Beth, obviously, in a myriad of ways. And Katie, as she's, you know, spoke things into my life and over the years with the kids. And then looking at the kids, Kobe out there with somebody bobbing up and down like a human bobber. Waiting to be struck by a shark, you know. Thinking about ways in which both of them have pointed me to Christ. And then these over here playing volleyball. And I just sat there. I just sat there for a second and just kind of looked at every single one of them. And it was like they have all impacted me in certain ways that they maybe didn't even know. Now here's the kicker. In that moment, everything else faded away. Work didn't matter. School didn't matter. Heck, even raising the kids in that moment didn't matter. Just contemplated Christ in that moment. And in that moment, I didn't try to fix them. Because isn't that where we get in trouble 90% of the time in our relationship with other people is when we start trying to fix them? You ever thought about that? When I sit back in the tent behind them and start looking at my dad and father-in-law, going, oh, you're a piece of junk this way, blah, blah, blah. Or look over here, my wife, can't believe she does this. Or my friends, I can't believe that they think that. Or my kids, I can't believe that they do this. Or I wish they would do this. Or I wish... When I sit back behind and start ridiculing and looking at how I can fix everybody, that's where it all goes to pot. But in the moment where you just sit back and reflect... This is the gift that God has made these people to be, to point me to Christ. 
it all just kind of makes sense. So it was kind of worth spending the $75,000 to go down to the beach this year, I guess. <laughs> you know, whatever, just to, just to pause. And, and some of you are like, was it really $75,000? Well, it was pretty close this year. <laughs> anyway, um, just kind of thinking about that. And simultaneously knowing the mess that every single one of them are. That's what made it beautiful. And today the text is kind of going to take us to just kind of that same concept. I hope, I hope you've noticed that in Genesis, every single family that we've run across that is pointing us to Christ is an absolute mess. I hope you've seen that. I hope you've picked up on that. That God uses glorious messes to accomplish His purposes. As a matter of fact, I would argue that it's pretty dadgum hard to find one single healthy family in the Bible. Go hunt me one down. It's pretty hard to find one that we would go, oh, they're, they're pretty healthy. 90% of them, or 99% of them, you'd go, they are just complete, absolute wrecks. Here's where we've been so far in Genesis. Adam and Eve, you think they might have had it right? Other than the fact that they cursed the entire world, eh? That's a, that's a bad one, okay? Cain and Abel introduced murder. Noah Hammered and naked in a tent. Need we say more? Abraham and Sarah. Adultery, abuse, jealousy, anger, and oh yeah, sleep with my maidservant. Lot and his family, Sodom. Incest, drunken incest, and the wife gets turned into salt. The entire Bible is just a bunch of messed up families. Sin, pain, hurt. And yeah, there's some joyful moments too, but they're just messed up. But these are awaiting a perfect Savior. And if they get one thing right, if they get anything right, is there's moments where they pause and just go, Okay, God, what do you want us to do next? And in that moment, they push one another to God's glory, push one another to think about the Lord intentionally. And in that moment, they change the course of history. God can use messy people to accomplish His purposes. If we'll just be intentional enough sometimes to back up, sit down up under a tent and look around and go, God, what are you doing and what do I need to do next to point one more person to you? It's just that simple. And in Genesis, we've run across this several times. So I hope you don't miss what the Bible has been clearly teaching us over the past several weeks, and showing us, before we move any further, I hope you've caught this, three things. Number one, I hope you've caught that most families are not picture perfect. (laughs) Most families in the Bible are not picture perfect. So you have freedom to loosen up if your family is indeed a nut job. Or nut house. If it is, you're in pretty good company. Number two, most families in the scriptures are a hodgepodge of selfish, selfish sinners trying to live together. So if that seems like your family, be gracious to one another. And then number three, every family is designed to show us truly how much of a mess we really are. So all of you Martha Stewart's in here who are trying to make it all perfect, 
you need to stop and recognize the beauty that mess really is. Because in our mess, we see our sinfulness. In our mess, we see the need for a Savior. In our mess, we embrace the grace that Christ has given and we will freely give it to others. But when you're sitting here trying to make it all work out, you're probably pretty graceless and probably pretty legalistic. There's beauty in mess. So, I don't know if that's just to salve my own soul of the fact that my family is the nut house. Uh, But I think there's some biblical truth to that as we've looked at this. We, We really are living, breathing gospel moments to one another. Right? I mean, think about it. The gospel is we're supposed to become aware of our sinfulness. In a family of mess, check, that's accomplished. In the gospel, we are supposed to see how we're unable to save ourselves. Check, family points us to that. In the gospel, we're supposed to believe and trust in Christ's substitutionary righteousness that he's perfect. Check, family shows us that. In the gospel, we're supposed to grow in giving grace to others daily. Check, family accomplishes that. And then finally, in the gospel, we're supposed to realize that earthly harmony is not what is most available and not even what is mostly needed by us, but eternal harmony with the Lord. And family points us to all those things. So today, I don't know, that was kind of like a long intro. I just maybe felt like it needed to be said. So maybe today, if nothing else, you'll gather around with your family, take a big selfie, hug each other and go, we are a big, giant mess that need Jesus. If you do that, you've walked away, and I think we've pointed each other to Christ. So put that on your Instagram feed or TikTok it or whatever. Um, The text, Genesis. Let's get into Genesis. Um, Last week, Tyler closed out Abraham, did a fantastic job, did he not? Um, Just reminding us that in the mundane, every mundane thing has meaning, and hopefully you walked away with that. There's intentionality in all the mundane. Uh, This is Genesis. If you're new to Safe Haven, we've been traveling verse by verse through. We've made it through the four major events in the first half of Genesis. We're now going through the four major people. This is how the whole book is broken up. Uh, Tyler closed out Abraham last week. We'll be in Isaac beginning this week. Isaac's pretty short. Go ahead and tell you why. Because Isaac serves really just as a kind of a precursor to get to Jacob. And Jacob is really what Genesis kind of hinges on. He has a, he has a, a bulk of the, of the book. So um, Abraham's closed out. We're moving on to Isaac. Another imperfect person. Another royal mess. Um, who learned both good things from his dad, and he also learned some bad things from his dad. We're going to see that as we go through. Um, And he won't be a perfect life, but again, he'll just be one more person in the journey who has intentional moments where he sits back and he seeks the Lord. And so we're going to kind of learn from those moments as we go through this. Let's look at this. Chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Um, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, uh, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Complete side note, we don't have to hang on it just for a second, but this guy Laban is going to be a real punk in a little bit, um, so you might want to just kind of take note of who he is. But Isaac, we're talking about Isaac right now. 
couple of things that we can learn about Isaac or that we have already learned about Isaac. They'll pop up on the screen above. If you're taking notes as we journey along, let's learn this together. Um, Isaac, number one, you remember, was a miracle child. He was a miracle child born to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they were well past childbearing years. They were in the hundreds. Um, he had lost all his joy in sexual things. She was uh, past menopause. But we can't have a child, but the Lord had promised one. So he, this is who it is. He, he, here he is. He's the miracle child that was born. Number two, his name literally means laughter. Hopefully you've grabbed that along the way. Uh, people are going to laugh at him all of his life. Some in a heinous laughter, um, and then some people just laughing that God really did accomplish all the things he accomplished through him. So, so some very worshipful. Number three, this guy was willing to be sacrificed. He was obedient to the point of death. Um, not death on a cross, but that's certainly uh, the moment where he walks up the hill with his father. He's laid down on the slaughter altar. The father raises up the knife. He is willing to take all of this. I think a lot of times, and and Tyler has kind of alluded to this and pointed this out, a lot of times we think about Abraham taking Isaac up to slaughter him, and we think of like a little baby. We think of like Indy, right? That was not the case. I mean, this was a man-child carrying the wood up a mountain. He knew what was going on, but yet he was willing. And so this, at this point, is, is kind of his shining moment. So we know this about him. We know he's married to Rebecca, who volunteered, um, I would argue, uh, miraculously, but also in a very servanthood-like way, to come and water all these camels. Um, So they didn't meet on a dating app. They meet around a herd of camels. As she's watering all these camels, this is how they, they met. It was a miracle moment. The Lord had orchestrated this, and this is how they end up being married. Number five, both were told that they would have huge amounts of offspring. The covenant that was given to Abraham to have land and possessions and people and all this stuff was passed on to Isaac. Um, Rebecca had also received this as she walked away and they sang a song over her. But here's the kicker. At this point, they'd both been promised tons of offspring. Ishmael has had 12 children. Isaac has had... Zero. A big goose egg. Okay? So there's this tension going on here. And then number six, what we've learned about Isaac is this. Just like Abraham and Sarah, they've got to learn a humongous lesson. And that huge lesson is this, that God's covenant promises cannot be fulfilled just by human effort. God has to be involved. And so they've got to learn this. And I can honestly say... Every single Sunday, as I'm leaving this area over here, and Tyler probably does the same thing, every single Sunday as I walk up, and I know it's time to come to the text, and my foot hits that step right there, the moment I hit it, I'm telling you, I am begging the Lord, Lord, if you don't say something of value, this is going to be a royal mess like the rest of the mess. If you don't pop something, if you don't take something and do something, this whole thing is going to be a complete mess. Please, Lord, do something. And I think Isaac models that. He hits all kind of messes in life. And I can assure you, from, my, from Sunday at 12 or, or whatever time we get out of here, um, all the way till Saturday, that's how my life feels. is just one mess to another, to another, to another, to another. And then you come to these moments going, Lord, 
I need you now, but here's my question. What if, what if every step in life was a step on the altar where we were asking the Lord, Lord, if you don't do something right now, I'm going to mess this up. Isaac has those moments. He has those moments that it has nothing to do with an altar where he just goes, Lord, God, I'm going to need you to do something here because I'll mess it up. What if, what if, we had that type of intentionality when we walked in the grocery store. Seriously. To go get the Powerade Zero and the goldfish. Got to get them for the kids. What if we went walking in step by step going, Lord, I'm going to mess up this whole grocery trip if you don't do something? What would that birth? What if the ballpark was that way? Right? Before we step foot in the dirt or to the gymnastics, or to the whatever it is, if we had that type of intentionality, getting out of our car, going in, going, Lord, I need you in this moment, because if you don't show up, I'm going to mess it up. What if school was the same way? What if we walked into school, or workplace, or whatever it is, going, I'm out of my car, God, I need you in this moment to do something, because I will mess this whole thing up. What if we had that type of intentionality? And I think Isaac points us to that. Just to see our lives as something that can be used of more than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. Because if you're like me, I don't think our lives should terminate or be exhausted by taking steps going, I'm not good enough, I don't measure up, I'm not a success, I'm not whatever the things are, blah, blah, blah. Head down in the grocery store to go buy the whatever it is. What if we walk with that type of intentionality of, God, you can use me now, as Tyler proclaimed last week, even in the mundane? And he can. And he will. And I think Isaac points us to that. What else can we learn about Isaac? Let's keep going. Verse 21. So Isaac has these, these, this, this wife. Um, in the moment after he has the wife, he's, he's got to fulfill this promise. He, he feels the need. God, I cannot fulfill this promise to have the land and the people and all this by human effort. I can't do it. Verse 21. And Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife. He turned. He goes, i got to take this step, but Lord, I can't take it. I've got to have you do it. And he prays. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I think we can learn something about Isaac, but I think we can also learn something just about his, his prayer. So kudos to Isaac that he doesn't follow in his father's footsteps in this moment. Because we all know what happened in this moment with his father. His father's barren. His father goes, hey, we'll just, we've got a maidservant. We'll make it happen. We'll do this. Well, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go, well, my dad taught me to. In other words, he wasn't the sum of his generation's past decisions. Some of us need to hear that. Because walk around going, I can't because my dad, blah. Or I can't because my mom, blah. Or I can't because my history, blah. He didn't do that. He was met with... The Lord wants me to. The Lord has told me this. And so therefore, I'll just pray. And I'll beg and I'll I'll plead. He wasn't the sum of his generation's past decisions. And then number two, he relentlessly prayed for years and years and years. 
You know, I think a lot of times we also can come to passages like this and go, oh, well, he just prayed and then magically, boom, ba-ba-boom, barren is no longer barren. No. I think we come to passages like this and go, okay, we, he prayed one or two times. No. He prayed, according to the Scripture, if you hop down to verse 26, for 20 years. 20 years. In our fast food society, we don't have a concept for this, do we? I mean, we are ticked off right now when we go to McDonald's and have to wait for five minutes. I mean, we're like, everybody should know. I mean, McDonald's has been around forever. Billions and billions served. It's the same seven combos. Get in, get out, get gone. Like, we're ticked that we have to wait. Or our TVs or our microwaves or whatever the situation is. We, we're furious when the internet goes glitchy for a second. Hey, newsflash, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we didn't even, like, it wasn't even there. It wasn't even a thing. We get, we get freaked out. I mean, y'all remember the whole AOL days. <laughs> You're hoping to log on. And now we're like, oh, that took 20 seconds to get online. I mean, we just, we're so warped. And so that impacts our notion of prayer. And we go, God, if I pray and you don't do it immediately, then this man prayed for 20 years. 20 years. And we get furious about, oh, good grief. We had a prayer time, and my food got cold. There was Grandpa. He, he prayed for, you know, 30 seconds. And we get, it's just, we're so warped. We can learn something about prayer from this man. A couple of things I think we can learn about prayer from him. Number one, why do we pray? Why do we petition the Lord? Well, because we ask God to intervene in our inability. He recognized, I cannot, but Lord, you can. And that's the essence of prayer. We pray expressing to the Lord, I can't. I'm unable. I need you. I think also we can learn a little bit about when do we not pray. When we don't pray or when we cease praying is because either we've just given up or but because we think we're capable and this is probably more impactful than anything else. Take a, just an inventory right now of your own prayer life. How's it looking these days? Like, How often are you praying? How are you praying? What does your intentionality in prayer look like? Let's just take the last seven days. What does that look like for seven days? And I can almost always assure you that if your life is exhibiting prayerlessness... It's because you think you're actually capable in and of yourself to pull off life. And that's when, we, that's when I don't pray. And our inability is where the Lord wants us. He wants us dependent upon Him. That's what it's all about. Why does God ask us to pray? Because when something gets pulled off, He alone gets the glory. And that's what He wants. Our God is a glory hoarder. you got to know that. And if you're an unbeliever in this room, you may go, well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, he asks us to be humble. Why would he want all glory into himself? Well, because he deserves it and because he rightfully owns it. Scripture says this about God. Our God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory. And when we pray and when we seek and when we are dependent upon him, he receives glory in the end. And then what happens when we pray? When we pray. 
Maybe one more note about prayer before we move on. When we pray, what happens is God aligns our will to his. And in this moment, that's what's happening with Isaac. Isaac's life is being molded to God's will. He's certainly praying, God, I want, God, I need, God, you have said, God, if you don't pull this off. And for 20 years, well, 19 years, the answer was no, 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 no. And you can't tell me with 19 years worth of no's that Isaac's heart wasn't molded into submission of, (laughs) if you don't pull it off, Lord. It's not going to happen, but i got to keep on living life. And that's what happens in prayer. So, with that said, God always answers prayer. There's never an unanswered prayer. And I know Garth Brooks was in town last night. It's where half our church is. I get it. This is the, the silly song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. That doesn't exist. Garth is a bad theologian. Great singer. Shook his hand when I was 19. This hand right here. If, you, if we have shaken hands with the right hand, you also have shaken Garth Brooks's hand. <laughs> How absurd is that? But it, uh, whatever. God always answers prayer. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. But whether it's a yes or whether it's a no, it's always right. Always. He is always right. He's massaging our hearts to His purposes because God's purposes are greater sometimes than our understanding. Let's keep going and wrap it up. Verse 22. So they they got married. We learned this about Isaac. They prayed. They had a kid. In verse 22... The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is this way, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. What a beautiful thing that a husband will seek the Lord in a way that his wife will also seek the Lord and vice versa. What a beautiful thing that we learn prayer from one another. May our homes be Full of people who are pushing one another. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. We don't know what to do. Let's pray. We celebrate. Let's pray. Let's pray. We go to the beach. <laughs> we gather around on a, on a balcony. Look like a bunch of nut jobs. Put our hands in right before we kick off the week and just pray, God, please let us have a great time. Let us have fun. One, two, three. Amen. I can't remember what was said actually this year. Anyway, um, anyway whatever it is, we pray. Let's push one another to pray. And then she goes and inquires of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So we've learned about Isaac, we've learned about prayer, and now we are straight back to one big giant mess of a family. (laughs) It's a mess. It's another cluster. Let's look at this real quick. The Bible says this, our English translations say the children struggled together in her womb. Quite literally, the Hebrew says this, the children were smashing one another inside the womb. This is what, it is a war going on inside here. Like if WWE had to name this, it would be like battle in the belly or something. I, you know, something like 
war is fighting. This is what they're smashing one another. Rebecca even questions at this point. God, if it's this way, I don't want to have them. I don't want to have these kids. What are you doing? And in this moment, have you ever prayed a prayer that God answered? And then after he answered it, you were like, I did not want you to answer that. I take it back. I take it back, but it's too late. He answered the prayer. This is what happens. And and so all of a sudden, she's going, God, I'm confused now. What are you doing? And then the Lord is crystal clear with what's going to happen with this messy family. I'll try to be quick. I'm open to conversations this week for lunch, dinner, whatever you want. We can hang out. We can fight through this together. But this is some powerful stuff in this passage. The whole book of Romans from 9 through 11 hang on what happens right here. And God is crystal clear in his threefold answer. She's going, what are you doing? And God says this, in your womb... I'm going to use these children as I please and not as you please. Little Indy. I'll do with her what I want to do. And he'll do with you what he wants to do. He says, in your womb, I'm going to use these children as I please. And these, you think, are two children, but I'm going to make them two what? You saw it. What? I'm making nations out of these kids. Not only does he say that, he says, I'm not going to do this like you think. You think, typically, that I'm going to use the older. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use the younger. Not in the way that you thought. I'm I'm going to create two nations, but I'm going to use the younger one. And even your womb is under my sovereign control. And you need to learn this, Rebecca. Even your womb is under my control. He doesn't make any mistakes. And then God offers zero explanation for his choice. He offers no explanation why he is going to choose Jacob. And as Romans says, somebody say it for me, hate Esau. He offers no explanation. And he's not even going to offer any apologies for his choice. It just is what it is. And he's teaching us something. And any attempt beyond God is sovereign, any attempt to explain this beyond God's sovereign in his choice is ultimately going to be an exercise in futility. Any attempt to explain it any other way. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. You could spin it to love less, whatever you want to. <laughs> like if that makes you feel better, if that makes you sleep better, Jacob, I love. Esau, I loved less. Like if that soothes your soul, then go for it. But that's still an exercise in futility. The whole point is God's sovereign. And he does what he wants and he moves and he shakes and he uses us for his glory. Even messy people in the womb before they've done good, before they've done bad Any of it, I will use them and I will override their AKA freedom, AKA mess, to accomplish my glorious purposes. And that gives hope to people like me. We'll explain that in just one second. God can use messy people. That's the whole point of this passage. 
It's been the whole point of the book of Genesis. And so if you walk in every week going, but I'm a mess, good. Welcome home to a group of messy people who are just hoping to somehow be used by the Lord despite us for His glory. He's going to teach them several things. He's going to teach them out of these kids that traditions, these should pop up on the screen, that traditions do not dictate how God can display His power. Traditions, it it doesn't dictate it. When Safe Haven Church started down in the theater, (laughs) we got nasty letters from churches. Churches. Not lost people, it was churches. You can't meet in the theater. You can't drop hot air balloons on... uh, uh, We didn't drop hot air balloons. (laughs) You can't drop Easter eggs out of hot air balloons on Easter Sunday morning. You can't... Why would you do this? Blah, blah, blah. Because of traditions. Because Tuscaloosa says, this is the tradition. you got to do this. If you're going to reach people, you got to do it this way. you got to... Whatever. And and here this group of nuts are, (laughs) you know, bouncing on bouncy houses and Easter, whatever. And it, it was just in hopes that one lost person who will not go to an Easter service, would show up and hop on a hot air balloon and hear about the gospel. It's the hope. Traditions don't bind the Lord. He can do what He wants to do, and the tradition says, older gets the inheritance. And God says, that ain't my tradition. I'm going to take this young buck, and I'm going to use him to mess up your whole system. God can use your mess. He can use your mess. Human wisdom does not dictate how God can display His power. Human wisdom says, if you're going to have a worship service, you've got to have Andrew fire up the guitar. There's a big problem with that. Pentecost. Right? Pentecost, Peter's just walking around in the desert and they're talking. There's no music, there's no solo, there's no Via Dolorosa, there's no organ, there's no hymn, there's nothing going on. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, I'm about to mess this joint up. Boom! And he shows up. Human wisdom doesn't dictate the Lord's control. Gifting does not dictate how God can display His power. I don't measure up. I don't have the good gifts. I don't... Stop! Embrace your mess and let the Lord use your mess. You ever heard of a guy named Zacchaeus? Sure you have. You've all sung the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And I don't remember the rest of the song. Maybe they'll teach you to VBS. You know, <laughs> Interesting about that passage. Small in stature has typically been translated to mean he was short to get up in the sycamore tree. But that can also be translated... He was small in stature in the eyes of society. And because of such, as a tax collector, the whole town pushed him out and said, you are too much of a mess. And he said, I am a mess, but I'll at least climb up in the tree to seek out who this Jesus is. It's a matter who you are. We little man, we little woman, great big giant man, great big giant woman. What? Small in stature, big in stature. He can use it all. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's what's being portrayed in here. It's all that to say as this passage goes on to unfold. You're going to miss the key if you get hung up next week on why did God not choose Esau? But you'll learn the whole lesson and you'll get the grace-filled truth if you ask the question, why on earth would God ever 
use messed up Jacob. That's when you'll get it. So as the band comes back up, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1.27. It says this, But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So we teach little Indy Ruth. Indy, bend your knee, exercise your will, chase after the Lord. But we also rest that he'll do whatever he sovereignly wants to do for his purposes. Just like Indy Ruth and just like you in the midst of your mess. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, Isaac's a mess. He's going to show us how much of a mess he is next week. His son Jacob's going to be a mess. Esau's going to be a mess. And hopefully all of that gives us freedom also as a church to be a mess. To be people who are a mess. Heck, Lord, you know I'm the biggest mess in this room. Praise you that you are quite capable of using messes like us to tell other messes about the one who was not a mess, who can turn all of our mess into something miraculously majestic. So, Lord Jesus, if you would be gracious, use this church family who just cling to the fact that Christ is not a mess to impact generation after generation after generation to just pause to climb under a tent and to see that you're accomplishing things for your glory despite us sometimes and also through us sometimes Lord you're great that's it I pray we worship you today because of this text in Jesus name I pray Amen